I worry a lot that we are seduced by certain efforts that maybe are not yielding enough in terms of outcomes. Yeah, okay, fine, you have a few more Latinos and Black people on the board or women. Yeah, okay, but what about what's happening in the executive room, your C-suite? How is that being diversified? Are we really being as competitive as we can be without diverse representation in those rooms? Hello, and welcome to the New Rules of Business by Chief. I'm Carolyn Childers. And I'm Lindsay Kaplan, and we're the co-founders of Chief, the network of the most powerful women in business. Each episode, we tackle a complex question that we know the C-suite is grappling with every day. And today, we're talking about board diversity. More than ever, companies are being scrutinized for the way that they build their boards, with diversity mandates coming from everywhere, from Wall Street to the government. Right. But are these diversity mandates enough? Or is it time for us to completely blow up the way we think about and place people on corporate boards? Yeah. And the fact is, boards are mostly staffed by lifers who have held their seats for decades. That means there just aren't any available seats for people of different identities and professional backgrounds to add their voices to corporate governance. Right. In 2020, 73% of Fortune 500 board members were men. And 83% were white. And add to that the fact that many board seats these days are given to VCs as part of funding deals. And the vast majority of VCs are men. So is the token woman in the room to tick the diversity box enough? And does she hold any power in that boardroom anyway? Later, we'll chat with someone who's seen up close what mandating diversity can do for a company's bottom line, Asahi Pompei of Goldman Sachs. But first, we're talking to Dr. Dan B. Samoyo, macroeconomist and author of the new book, How Boards Work. We asked Dambisa to clear up some common misconceptions and to speak to what she thinks is the ideal board makeup for today's constantly changing global economy. Dambisa, welcome. Thanks so much for joining us today. Can you start by telling us a bit about your background and how you came to your research on corporate boards? Thank you so much for hosting me. I am a trained macroeconomist. My PhD from Oxford is in economics, and I've spent about 10 years working in finance. And then in the past 10 years, um, I've been serving on large global and complex corporations and in varied uh, areas such as mining and energy, banking and consumer goods, um, and across regions. I've been a board member on U.S. corporations as well as Canada and the U.K. And, uh, you know, I would just add the point that I'm very much an unconventional board member. I joined my first board when I was 39 years old, and uh, I uh, also did not come from the C-suite And, you know, obviously, uh, maybe not so obviously on a podcast, uh, I'm a black woman from Africa. And so in that respect, also, certainly 10 years ago, when I first joined um, boards, uh, was uh, certainly underrepresented in terms of, of the board. I'd love to hear more about that first journey onto a board, especially coming from, as you said, an unconventional background. How did you go on that journey to find that first board seat? I spent, you know, a good half decade, probably more, trying really hard to, to get on boards in the manner in which I thought really would work. I, you know, I tried to get on the, the radar of many um, search firms that are um, involved in, in board recruitment. 
Um, I tried to take courses and non-executive board experience, and I failed miserably. And, you know, in retrospect, I realized that um, I was basically pushing up a, a closed door because no one had told me at that time um, that boards were really um, set up to recruit from the C-suite. Um, they were looking for people who had uh, been in CEO, uh, CFO roles. And um, in that respect, I really had no chance. But, you know, rather fortuitously, the world changed. And so there was a widening of the aperture of where boards were looking for talent. Um, and they started to look for people who had a more global perspective, things like technology and climate change and issues around growth and the rise of China, for example. And, you know, without much planning and design, I had spent a, a good part of my professional career working on those areas. And so I, you know, really very fortuitously became uh, appealing. So many people are probably going through the exact same journey that you did at the beginning. They were, you know, I'm going to get on a board. It's my goal to be on a board. They were trying to pound down that like CEO, CFO door, but you managed to find like the framing of your experience that brought that unique perspective. How did that come about? Someone said to me, it's really important that candidates ask themselves who from the management team is going to call me. And I thought that was really interesting because I think, yeah, I, I can come up and I, I know lots of people can come up with reasons as to why they should be on boards or why they want to be on boards. But it's a much harder and important proposition, I think, which we don't delve into enough to ask the question, why should the company pick you? And I think the question of who is going to call you, is the CEO going to call you and say, I need your help in, in issue X or issue Y? Is it going to be the CFO? Is it going to be, you know, the chief marketing officer? And, I, and rather than just think I should be on board X, I think that answering that question was really important. And for me, when I realized that the, the world was changing so dramatically, there were pushback on globalization, China was rising, et cetera. And this is where I'd spent uh, you know, a good 10 years of my career. I started to change the narrative and start to be able in interviews to articulate that I could help the strategic part of the business. I could help by being on the risk committee. Um, and that maybe this is worth also stressing here. I think too many people say they want to join a board without really doing enough due diligence about what company, why should you be on company X versus company Y, or why should somebody else not have that seat? But also, we don't do enough thinking around the board committees, where, to be honest, a lot of work is done. So people say, I want to be on a board. And when I'm interviewing, I'm like, that's great. But which committee would you like to be on? Compensation or audit or risk or nominations and governance? And people just haven't thought about it that way. Many of these companies have been around a long time. They're only, you know, on average, about 12 seats to be filled. And given the just global challenges that we're dealing with right now. I mean, those are very coveted, but very precious seats for team dynamics, for being forward-leaning, for the success of business long-term. So we can't be in a place to just give them out willy-nilly. Um, and, you know, fortunately, there are so many women and minorities who are incredibly talented that we don't have to sort of scrape the barrel, as they say. But I do think we do. We have a lot more work to do for people like myself as unconventional board members in, in sort of scrubbing the narrative to make ourselves more appealing to businesses. So you mentioned earlier that boards are traditionally looking for C-suite executives like the COO, CFO type. Why were boards before the world changed so zeroed in on that type of profile? 
that type of profile, ex-CEO, ex-CFO, et cetera, um, still, I think, is and ought to be a good 40 to 50 percent of the board. Why is it important? Because, you know, really, we're in the business of not just risk management, but also investment. And so you really do want to, uh, if you're the CEO, for example, have on the other side of the phone, a phone call, people who've been in the trenches. Um, So, you know, let's just take the most recent crisis of a pandemic. We want to be able to call somebody to hear how you navigate a challenging situation that actually has many knock-on effects. It affects your ability to finance your company. It affects how you operate. It affects your people and your culture. And the reality is, you know, I may be able to add a lot of value. I'd like to think so, but um, I would not be able to give a sort of blow-by-blow detailed assessment of how to navigate a crisis, especially for a global uh, complex organization. I do think that we shouldn't discount the important uh, experience that comes from blocking and tackling and managing these complex businesses from the C-suite. So that is still um, absolutely, to my mind, a critical piece. How do you react to some of the recent calls to action that have been out there around boards, like the new California law or NASDAQ's rule, both of which require companies to have more diversity? Do you think they're a needed part of the ecosystem for board creation? So I think that, um, you you know, I sort of fallen in love with the term necessary evil again. And in that respect, you know, as a black person, a black woman, I don't want to be at a board table because I'm a black woman. I want to be at a board table because people actually think what I have to say. And given my background in finance, my background in uh, as an economist, that they think I'm adding value. And I, I believe I'm adding value. I like to tell the story of how uh, I had this sort of wish list of joining the board of Amazon. I woke up one day and they had put Indra Nui on the board. And I thought, of course, Indra Nui should be on the board of Amazon, given what she's done. She was CEO of PepsiCo. She's done a phenomenal job. And, you know, to me, it has nothing to do with the fact that she's Indian born and a woman. It's because she's got a track record. And I think that's the world we should be vying for. I worry a lot that we are seduced by certain efforts that maybe are not yielding enough in terms of outcomes. Yeah. Okay, fine. You have a few more Latinos and Black people on the board or women. Yeah. Okay. But what about what's happening in the executive room, your C-suite? How is that being diversified? Are we really being as competitive as we can be without diverse representation in those rooms? And then what about our subcontractors, the the accounting firms, the, the financial firms, the law firms that are advising these businesses? Are they diverse? And then I'll just add one more. What about our ability to influence things like education and healthcare and and uh, you know criminal justice by actually only hosting events like our annual general meetings in towns where we can actually objectively see progress in these metrics. I mean, if there are towns from Tampa to Dallas to take your pick where people are facing worse economic standards, no education, bad health care, criminal justice uh, abuses, then I don't think the companies should be investing money in those places. The point just being, we should not stop at, oh, the board is diverse now, or we've done our job and give ourselves a pat on the back. There's a lot more work that we can do. And we should be thrilled that uh, this is happening at a time when there's real talent out there, um, real competition. 
And there have been countless studies that show that the true benefits of diversity come when there isn't just one token woman or minority in the room. Yeah. If you have one, everybody's like, oh, that's the diversity candidate. If you have two, people wonder if they get along. Oh, are they going to have a cat fight? <laughs> and if you have three, it's the minimum number where people, it's irrelevant that you're a woman. Nobody really cares. They care more about what you're contributing to the conversation. And I'm sympathetic to that. And I'm grateful that I happen to serve on boards um, where if not half of the board, pretty darn close to half of the board is women. Um, and the minority representation is also quite considerable and growing. So I look, I'm happy to be alive at this time. I think we've made enormous strides in politics. Uh, We've had female presidents around the world. We've made enormous progress in many sectors, banking, uh, mining, consumer goods, technology, old and new have all had female CEOs as an example. Is there a lot more work to be done? Absolutely. But I I don't think we should sort of uh, navel gaze and, and be despondent that, you know, we haven't made progress. We've made progress, but we need to put more emphasis on making sure that we can continue to make the progress that's needed. And if you could get really simplistic, what is a board's mandate? So I would say two things at a very macro level. Um, First of all, boards have a role to continue to help companies provide jobs Um, continue to generate as as going concerns revenue for the government through taxes, but also to help innovation. And we've seen that obviously in the past year with what companies have done in partnership with government in delivering the vaccine. But as a practical matter, the second area, which is really the mandate that's enshrined legally, there are three parts. One is strategy. So boards are required and expected to oversee the strategy of the company. The second point is hiring and in some cases having to fire uh, the CEO. And then the third thing is we are now expected to provide oversight um, on issues around ESG, environmental, social and governance uh, areas. And this has changed even just in the 10 years, the decade that I've been on boards. It used to be that we ring fence CSR and said, oh, we've got a great foundation. We're doing good things. But that has moved really quickly. I think it won't be long before a lot of these issues will just be part of integrated reporting um, as more and more these issues become part and parcel of compensation, part and par- parcel of how we hire and promote um, and how we engage with society. So if those are the mandates of the board in totality, what do you think the hallmark of an effective board member is? Like if you bring it down to the individual level, what do you think makes somebody really effective in that role? Great question. Um, I would say top of mind is not being judgmental. This is complex stuff. And, you know, in the book, I cite something that President Obama said, which is when when he was president, when uh, something hit his inbox, he would say it, it's in his inbox because it's very difficult. If it were easy, somebody else would solve it. And it's very much the same. When something hits the agenda of a board, it means it's very difficult. Otherwise, somebody else would have solved it. And I think we need to we need board members around the table who understand that complexity and the nuance of having to navigate through challenging times, but also navigating in different jurisdictions across different cultures and understanding that there's no one right answer. We're, we have a responsibility and a goal, but we have to work in a sort of collegiate way to make sure that these organizations continue to move forward. I think the other thing, um, apart from being non-ideological, non-judgmental, is just board members that lean in to the future. How are they thinking about complex issues that are coming, um, not just as they are now, but 
future issues like digitization, like the, the amount of co- the number of companies that are delisting, the rise of private equity. You know, all these issues are things that you know, I think the best board members um, show curiosity and show an effort to understand what's coming as opposed to just sitting and being spoon fed. So I've been super fortunate. I've really uh, rolled with the best of them, as they say, and I, I, I learned so much from um, the temerity, but also the just the elegance of many board members and how they've conducted themselves. What are people confused about uh, around what boards actually do and how they function? What are just some of the things that you've seen people get wrong about boards? I think that a lot of people think that boards have more levers to effect change than they actually do. So as a board member, I am elected by shareholders, but I'm not elected by society writ large. And yet, if you look at the slate of issues that I'm being asked to opine on, voter rights, abortion in Texas, uh, issues around Black Lives Matter. I mean, these are all issues that there's an expectation that boards and the corporations that they lead have an answer to. So that to me is the biggest issue. There's um, perhaps a, a vacuum in public policy. And with that vacuum in public policy, there's been a a shift towards the corporations are the problem and also the solution. And yet the problem is that we are not equipped to deal with a lot of these societal issues as much as people, we don't really have the full toolkit to address many of these challenges. If you go back in history and through other periods of challenge, It wasn't just that corporations worked and it didn't matter that civil society or government was dysfunctional. That was never the case. For for societies like the United States to move forward, everybody has to be firing at the top cylinders. And, um, you know, whether that's the rollout and the U.S. government in particular has a great history of doing things that are value enhancing for society, but also good for business. Um, everything from rolling out the high school system in the U.S. that was paid, provided the education that was necessary for corporations. Things like building the interstate network. I mean, that's genius if you think about it. The government sat down and mapped this thing out. Then I fear that since 2000, there's been very much an anti-corporate backlash. I think that really has a lot to do with the vacuum left by government to some degree, but also has meant that uh, people have too much expectation on what companies can do by themselves. Um, And that's where I, I really wish we could spend more time understanding that all these different groups Um, civil society, government, as well as corporations need to sit together to solve the biggest challenges the world will face, climate change, digitization, inequality, et cetera. No one group can do it by themselves, um, even though very often now corporations are being sidelined in those discussions. If you look at kind of the ways in which boards are formed, the way they operate, what are the elements that you just think are, are ripe for change that need to be changed in order for boards to just operate better? I would say three things really quickly. One, emphasis on ethics. I think it's clear that um, when we're hiring the CEO or even selecting fellow board members, we spend a lot of time, or certainly I do, thinking about do they have a financial acumen? Have they operated complex teams? How do they understand things like um, culture and some of the ESG um, challenges that businesses are dealing with? That's not enough. We're in a world where we also need to somehow really test the boundaries of people's ethics. I would say two other things as we lean forward to the future. We need to make sure that our um, strategic efforts, as well as the efforts in ESG, 
are time consistent. So if I sit here and I think about where the future is going, not where it is now, I know that within over the next 30, 40, 50 years, technology is going to be a big piece of the story. Um, and in particular, automa- automation, digitization, um, you know, what does that mean for diversity? Because a lot of companies now say, oh, we're extremely diverse, especially uh, retailers. And if you say, well, wow, how do you have so many um, Blacks and Latinos and women? You find that many of those are lowly paid uh, workers. They, you know, are packing goods, are tellers, et cetera. But, you know, there's no discussion about how in 10 years, those jobs those are exactly the jobs that are likely to be disintermediated and therefore will still have an issue around diversity. So um, I think we need to think about the, that as a future-proofed moment. And then the only other thing I would say is private equity. We've had in the last 10 to 15 years, 50% of publicly traded companies have disappeared. We're now, we've gone from around 7,000 down to 3,500. But whatever the reasons, we've ended up with fewer companies that are publicly traded, therefore fewer companies that are sort of under the light of, uh, of scrutiny. Um, and so again, if, if more of the room where it, it happens is actually happening outside of our purview, we have to make sure that as women, Blacks, Latinos, et cetera, we're not just having a Pyrrhic victory. Yay, Dambisa Moyo's on a, a board, but actually I'm not in the room where it's happening. Um, if the room where it's happening is a private equity room. So I think there's a lot of scope and there's a lot of innovation happening around worker audits, around making sure that private equity businesses and assets are also being um, considered for scrutiny. But I think about not just today, I think about where the puck is going, to use a Wayne Gretzky quote, and, and think really more about um, how do these businesses survive or how do they stand up to some of the ESG and ethical standards that society is imposing in a world that is really trends that are pushing against against that. And I think the role of the board is to dig into these complex problems and to choose a committee that makes the most sense for you to join and to be that call. So I kind of want to sum this up. We ask all of our guests this. What is the best piece of leadership advice you've ever gotten? So best piece of advice is from a friend of mine who's 84. He and I served on a board together. He was the chairman and CEO of one of the largest corporations in the U.S. in the 1980s. And he said to me, Dambisa, in over 80 years of being on the planet, you are always going to be surprised. Well, it might be a financial crisis. It might be a pandemic. It might be a populist you know, president comes to office. It could be Brexit. It could be the rise of China. Take your pick but you are always going to be surprised. I love that. This has been absolutely wonderful. All of those companies that have you on their board are incredibly lucky. Thank you for joining us. This was incredible. Thank you. It was a pleasure. That was economist and author of How Boards Work, Dr. Dambiza Moyo. I really feel like she gave us a crash course in how boards should work and what companies need to do to diversify their boards so that they can actually stay relevant. You know what part of the conversation I loved? Everybody wants a spot on the board, Mm -hmm. but people don't often focus on what spot you'll take on the board. Like who at the company is going to call you for insight and what specific value are you bringing to the table? Yes. And also diversifying the board is an important piece of the puzzle. 
But just as important is making sure that you're bringing diversity throughout the company and the organizations you work with, whether that's contractors, lawyers, you as a leader should be making a ripple effect on fields outside of your own purview. Exactly. So we got the big picture from Dambiza. And I was curious to get the perspective of someone who's seen even more closely how taking a stand on board diversity can benefit an organization. So enter Asahi Pompey. Asahi is the global head of corporate engagement and president of the Goldman Sachs Foundation. Her biggest and most exciting project is Goldman Sachs's One Million Black Women Initiative, which has pledged $10 billion in direct capital to positively affect the lives of a million Black women by 2030. $10 billion. Badass. Yeah. Given all that Asahi has done, she is the perfect person to ask about Goldman Sachs's other headline-making diversity initiative from last year. Goldman won't take a company public unless they have at least one, and starting in July of this year, two diverse board members. And that came in before the NASDAQ mandate and the California board diversity law. So we asked her to dispel the myth that the diversity pipeline just isn't there and about the questions she likes to use to shake up the room a little. Welcome, Asahi. We're delighted to have you. Thank you so much for having me. I was excited when I woke up this morning with a bit of a pep in my step that I got a chance to uh, to talk with you guys. What you're doing, I think, is sort of a movement. It's movement making around women and leadership. And so I'm excited to be with you because I feel like in part, that's what we're leading here at Goldman Sachs with the Million Black Women Initiative. Well, I also have a big pep in my step. So you mentioned the One Million Black Women Initiative. Let's start there. How did it start and what root problem are you working to solve? So it's probably the most incredible thing I've worked on over the course of my career. It's a $10 billion investment to positively impact the lives of at least a million Black women by the year 2030. And on top of that, if $10 billion weren't enough, $100 million in philanthropic capital. The thesis is that If we can positively impact the lives of Black women and follow along the arc of their lives, then we're going to be able to do something that's really community changing, that's really changing to our country. And so the investment is really follows along the arc of a Black woman's life. It starts with, you know, maternal care, that her mother get the right maternal care. We know that Black babies are dying at a higher rate um, than other babies in this country. Um, We live in the shadow of the best medical system in the world, and yet this is what's happening. Did she get to a preschool where by six or seven, she's learning how to read? Is she able to live in safe housing? Black women are a third more likely to live in unsafe housing. And so it thinks about healthcare, housing, education, and the key milestones of a Black woman's life, which frankly are the milestones of all of our lives, regardless of our race and ethnicity. And it makes investments along the pathway of her life. Just to pause for a second, that's $10 billion with a B, not an M. That's an amazing, amazing initiative that you all are doing. Are there certain areas where you are extending even more, where you are investing more than others? And, and how do you go about thinking about that as you kind of work so many of these philanthropic angles from Goldman? Yeah, I love that you underscore this billion with a B because it's the single largest commitment 
focus on Black women. And I think that the investment is a key component of it, but I think the how we're going about it is also quite differentiated. So we are doing listening tours. So we've done 41 listening tours as of last night. 13,000 people across the country have dialed in or zoomed into these listening tours. And it really is sort of shocking the system. It's saying, this is a humble Goldman Sachs. This is a listening Goldman Sachs. This is a Goldman Sachs that says, I don't have all the answers to exactly what investment needs to be made in every single Black community in America. But I do know that there are people on the ground, women on the ground, leaders on the ground that are doing this work. And I want to hear from them about what would make a difference. And so I think that combination of the 10 billion, but also the how we're going about it is one of the ways that I think makes this particular investment very differentiated. The other area that Goldman has been leading the charge is around board diversity which we could spend all day talking about all of the different realms in which diversity uh, needs to improve. But I think it was January of 2020 that Goldman stated that they will not take public any company that does not have at least two diverse board members. Can you talk a little bit about that decision and why it was such an important step for, for the company and statement for the company to make? Companies that are in the top quartile for ethnic diversity are 33% more profitable, right? Diverse fund managers, the returns on their companies are 20% more, right? And so aside from, from a D and I perspective, it's an important thing to do. The proof is in the data in terms of how these companies perform. Now, Goldman Sachs, we care about our clients and we care about our clients' performance. And if we figured out a way and we know of a way where your company can actually do better. It's incumbent upon us to make sure that one, of one, we're telling you that, two, we're advising you in the correct way because we're the best-in-class advisor, and we're also, I think, really pushing the market where the market needs to go. I think part of why I think that garnered so much attention is because, one, it said, look, we're potentially ready to walk away from revenue you know, if that this doesn't happen. And two, we're really pushing the market to do something that a purpose-driven company should do, but hadn't really been done before. Now, you know, fast forward a year and a half later, it's amazing to look at the fact that from July of 2020 to July of this year, we've IPO'd 200 companies in the US and in Western Europe. Every single one of them has complied with that policy. I love the idea of positioning it to a potential you know, client or company and saying, I can give you a 33% increase in your profitability. <laughs> Just exactly. <do> this <laughs> yes. Do you, do you not want that? <laughs> right? Exactly. And I love that hundreds of companies complied because it's not that hard. Thank you. Where's the pipeline? How do we find them? Here's something that happened, Lindsay, to your point that we hadn't anticipated. We then had companies coming to us saying, can you help us? Do you have a diverse you know, board member? Do you have a phenomenal woman that you've heard about? And so we now have a team of people internally that that's their job. Like what, how awesome a job is that to say, I'm going to find amazing, you know, diverse candidates, women, and I'm going to, you know, get them on boards. We now have a pipeline also of individuals, some that are ready and others that we're grooming to be ready. So we're like, yeah, when a client has a problem, we can be part of the solution, not only saying we won't IPO you, but hey, we're going to link arms with you to help you get there. So 
the idea of having, you know, women on the board and diversity on boards is kind of one step, but there's also like the inclusivity part of it too, of making sure that when those individuals actually join that team and are in that room, that they have the same voice and power as the other people that are that are in that room. And do you have any ideas, suggestions, advice that you also give to people that are either working with all of you at Goldman or just you personally on what boards can do now that they actually have that diversity in the room to make sure that it truly is an inclusive environment? Yeah, I think what's really critical about your question is that people often talk about, you know, just getting the person on the board and you're going beyond like, okay, so now let's get to the board meeting and what's happening in the board meeting. Yes. And is, which committee should we be joining to have the most impact? Exactly. It's not just getting in the door. It's like, what's the impact that that person can have once they're in the room? Look, I think it's clear the more that individuals that are in the room, the louder that voice becomes because they're feeding off of each other very often. So it's better to have more. Basta. What I would say is this, though. It begs the question whether if there is one or if it's only two, can that person have impact? And what I would say is unequivocally, the answer is yes. History has shown us in so many sectors that a single person can make a huge difference. And I think it goes to your question around really making sure that that person has sort of backup. Now, that backup could be in the room, but that backup could be outside of the room that that shores them up before they get into the room around, you know, the issues the company is facing. These are the important committees that you may want to be a part of. These are, you know, if this conversation is heading in a particular direction, here are strategies in which you can employ if you've got a particular perspective that you want to be able to make. I find, frankly, that a great question can really shake things up. And just be quiet after you ask it. You know, don't don't att- don't attempt to to answer it yourself. Just ask it and be quiet. What's your favorite blow up the room questions? Why? It starts with a why. <laughs> <laughs> it could end with a why too. Just one statement. Why? <laughs> That's why. Oh, I love that. Exactly. Why? <laughs> and what is your advice for uh, people of underrepresented communities to either get their first board seat or when they're in that room, command power outside of dropping the why? I would say one, I think of nonprofit boards as sort of a, you know, a gateway to for-profit boards. And so to the extent that you can kind of cut your teeth on a great nonprofit board, it kind of demystifies it all and all of that. I think another strategy to employ is understanding that a lot of the meeting happens outside of the meeting. And making those connections in the weeks before the meeting, I think is particularly, particularly important. And frankly, I walk into a room differently if I'm having those pre-conversations. So I think those are the two strategies I would recommend. Well, we want to close with the questions that we ask of everyone that comes on, which is, we'd love to hear the best piece of leadership advice that you have ever received. I would say... As a leader, and this is chief after all, I would say, do you, would you want to be led by you and really interrogate yourself around, you know, your leadership style and whether you'd want to be led by you? So that's a question uh, as a form of advice that leads us all down a path of self-reflection, which I think is important. Yeah, that could be a, you know, 
deep, deep session. I'm going to have to go to a therapist for that question. (laughs) (laughs) That's our next podcast. We'll do one of just on women. Do you want to be led by you and answers from that honest ones? All right. And then the counter to that question is, what is the worst piece of leadership advice you've ever received? It's a marathon. It's not a sprint. And it came from someone who was a a male that didn't have to be a man, but he was a male person who was assigned to be my my mentor. And I went to him and I said, I really want to become a managing director at Goldman Sachs one day. And he's like, slow down. You just, you just got here. You're moving too fast. You know, it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. But obviously, you know, his dreams for me were smaller than my dreams were for myself. And so I never really liked that piece of advice because there are lots of times in your career where you're going to have to sprint. Sahi, thank you so much for joining us. This was incredible. I love, love what you guys are doing. Uh, I'm a huge, huge fan and you're impacting the lives of so many people, women, boys, others, um, and men. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you so much. This was wonderful. That was Asahi Pompey, Global Head of Corporate Engagement and President of the Goldman Sachs Foundation. I love this woman. She's so clear-eyed about the tangible benefits of having a diverse board and a strong pipeline. And that figure she cited, where companies with strong racial diversity are 33% more profitable, how can a company argue with that? Yes. And I'm pretty blown away and, and heartened by the fact that 200 companies have already stepped up and said, yes, we can meet that diversity bar that you've set. Me too. I also just love that one question she asks, why? And I'm going to ask you that in every meeting from now on, Cece. Why? Why? Why are we doing this? (laughs) Oh, God. Can't wait. That sounds delightful. Why? So, okay, maybe we don't need to completely blow up the boardroom. But after talking to Dambisa and Asahi, it's clear that the data absolutely supports significant shifts. And the good news is, where diversity leads, profitability will follow. So follow the money. That's all for this episode of The New Rules of Business by Chief. You can find us on LinkedIn, or if you're interested in joining the Chief Network, apply to be a member at chief.com. Thank you to Sharon Yee, Courtney Conley, Katrina Conan and Rial, Blaine Edens, and Gabriella Margarino at Chief. And to our production team, Pod People, Rachel King, Matt Sav, Amy Machado, Andy Bosnack, Madison Lesby, Michelle O'Brien, and Veronica Simonetti. Our music is by Colin Hatch. I'm Lindsay Kaplan. And I am Carolyn Childers. Thanks for listening.